Father, we are thankful for our Savior who came down and was subjected to beatings and torture, but who went willingly to the cross because he loved us. And we thank you, Lord, for the great love wherewith you loved us. And we just ask you now to bless our time in your word. May your spirit be our teacher. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good evening, guys. Good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. So in our study, we uh, are in the home stretch. And we've uh, already exited, by the time we come to chapter 19, out of a very dark valley. Um, a valley of man's rebellion and God's judgment. But now, we see uh, things are changing very quickly. So we this evening we're in Revelation 19 and we're starting with verse 11 where John said, Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Note the emphasis on Jesus' name that he is faithful and true. He's also called that in chapter thir uh, 3 verse 14 but faithful and true, guys, represents Jesus as a keeper of promises. First of all, when he promises something, it's true, and he's faithful to always carry it out. He will always keep a promise, always. And um, But see, that's a kind of a two-edged sword, because he also keeps the promises of judgment. The promises of judgment. You know, many scriptures in both the Old and New Testaments anticipate, actually promise, this scene. Jesus coming to the earth to judge his enemies. I, I'll give you a flavor of this. Uh, you don't have to turn to these, but Psalm 96, verse 13, For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Psalm 9, verse 8. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Acts 10, verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to judge, to be judge of the living and the dead. And I'll give you one more second. There's dozens of these, obviously, but uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Where Paul said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So that's what we see going on here. So again, verse 11 tells us that uh, Jesus is coming, John says, on a white horse. And uh, he is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Guys, the statement, his eyes were like a flame of fire, this speaks of his searching, penetrating vision and understanding of all things, especially when it comes to sin. Hebrews 4 verse 13 tells us, And there is no creature or nothing hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. God sees all. Nobody's getting away with anything. Uh, our country, we bemoan the fact that there seems to be a two-tier justice system. If you have one political affiliation, you can get away with about it, just about anything. If you belong to the other political affiliation, you can't even go 100 feet within the Capitol. If there's a problem, they're going to drag you in, uh, and I'm not going to go there. But when Jesus takes over, everyone is going to stand before him, and they're all going to have to give an account. Now, it says, on his head were many crowns. Verse 12, the word crowns, uh, the word for crowns here is diadems. We've already talked about this. A diadem was a crown worn by a king. This is interesting that in those days, sometimes when a king conquered a city, 
he would actually place on his head, along with his own crown, the crown of the conquered king, signifying that he was now king of that king. That's interesting. Jesus is seen here wearing many crowns, indicating that he is the king of all kings, lord of all lords of all the earth. He is the supreme king. Remember what the father said to the son in Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Jesus Christ, when he comes back, will rule over the entire earth. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Verse 12 tells us, it says he has a name inscribed which no one knows except Jesus himself. That's kind of interesting. One author said, and I quote, There are mysteries connected with the person of Christ that no created being will ever be able to comprehend, end quote. Well, that's interesting because some Christians think that once we get to heaven, we're going to know everything like God knows everything. No, we're going to be known as we are known already. We're going to know him because we're going to see him. But that doesn't mean we're going to be as smart as God. If, if, if a person is as smart as God, they would have to be God. So when we get our glorified bodies, we're going to be a lot smarter. I know I will be. A lot smarter than we are now, but we're not going to have the intelligence of God. We're not going to know all things. Uh, apparently, this indicates that there are some things about God we may never comprehend, and that's fine. That's fine. Um, when we see him face to face, I don't have to know everything. I'm going to know enough. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Let me stop there. Now, depending on the commentators you read, uh, some believe that Jesus' robe is dipped. Actually, the Greek is baptized, which is, which is a word that means immersed. So, Jesus is wearing a robe, that, robe that's immersed in blood, and they think it's his blood that he shed on Calvary's cross. I don't think so. I think in reality, what, he's, what he's, his robes are dipped in is the blood of his enemies. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it, okay? But he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. If we had any doubt who this person is, uh, all doubts are gone. Because the Word of God is one of the more familiar names for the Lord Jesus Christ in Scripture. You, you might want to turn to this. You all know it. John chapter 1. John's Gospel chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, a title for Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is a title for Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. Verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns, will be accompanied by armies, plural, which are in heaven or which come with him from heaven. These armies contain four divisions that make up these glorified troops. First of all, the first group that comes with Jesus when he returns to the earth is his bride, the church. Earlier, uh, in verses 7 and 8, of, of Revelation 19, the church was pictured wearing fine linen, white and clean. And so, of course, when Jesus returns to reign, his queen, his bride, his church will be coming with him. That's the first group. The second group will that is coming with him from heaven to the earth to establish his kingdom will be the tribulation saints. These that were martyred on the earth. We see them in Revelation 7 verse 9 wearing white robes, an innumerable amount of people that will be killed by the Antichrist, martyred for their faith during the tribulation period. Their souls and spirits will go on to be with the Lord and they will return with him 
when he comes to establish his kingdom. The third group is going to consist of Old Testament, Old Testament saints. Moses, David, Isaiah, right? They, they were in Hades, remember, which was divided into two compartments, still is. One side was Abraham's bosom, a paradise, where believers went, you know, Old Testament believers. The other side was a place of torment, divided by a giant gulf like the Grand Canyon. So one side couldn't go to the other and vice versa. The paradise side was called Abraham's bosom, and the saints were comforted, but they were in prison because their sins hadn't been paid for. They couldn't leave. They couldn't go to heaven. Now, Jesus would take care of that on the cross, and before he ascended back to the Father after his death, he descended into the lower parts of the earth and let the cap set the captives free. So now Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, I believe, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord, right? So Abraham's bosom, Hades, in the center of the earth, that's empty. The other side, which is a place of torment, is still very active, where all unbelievers go when they die. Now we'll talk more about that uh, in just a moment. So we have the Old Testament saints whose souls and spirits are with the Lord, and they're going to come back with him when he comes back to the earth. Here's the thing. When Jesus returns, at that time, he's going to resurrect the, the bodies of the Old Testament saints and the bodies of the tribulation saints. And they will be resurrected. We have already got our glorified resurrected bodies at the rapture, the church. But there are scriptures such as... Um, uh, the Old Testament saints and uh, the tribulation saints talking about the resurrection, which is their, their human bodies being raised from the dead, glorified, okay? So we have the church, we have the um, tribulation saints, we have the Old Testament saints. The fourth group that will be coming with the Lord when he returns are the holy angels, God's angels. We know this from Matthew 25, verse 31. They will also accompany Christ as he returns to the earth to establish his kingdom. The white horses. Some people say, I told you there was going to be animals in heaven, and my doggy and kitty, they're going to come with me, and I hope so. I, I know that you have your heart. Some people, well, I had one lady honestly said, if my cats can't go with me to heaven, I don't want to go. Okay, well, we have an issue here now. Okay, I mean, that's, okay, you know, I know you love your animals. Animals are great. I've had pets. But that's a little over the top. Anyways. Um, but these white horses, there's no reason to think, and I, I personally do not think, that they are, you know, uh, literal horses. You know, the cavalry's coming, and they're riding literal horses. No, these are some kind of spiritual horses, you know, uh, designed for heaven. Earthly horses were designed by God for earth, right? Uh, these are heavenly horses, and... Um, be nice to see uh, one of these horses someday, but I'm sure they're magnificent creatures, but they are, I believe, spiritual in nature. But I want you to notice, unlike the Lord Jesus Christ, this heavenly army is unarmed, unarmed, because he, Jesus, and he alone will destroy his enemies. He's not going to need any help, okay? Okay. Isaiah 63, 63, verse 3 says, Jesus speaking, I have trodden the winepress alone. And we'll read that in its context in just a moment. But guys, when the Lord Jesus returns to the earth, he will judge his enemies alone. But he is not coming to the earth alone, as we just saw. Right? Turn to Jude chapter 1, and that's a little trick because there's only one chapter. But in the book of Jude, verse 14, we read, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Folks, that's the evening news. Amen. So, 
you know what? I mean, I'm sure that he's got politicians in mind primarily. But nobody gets away with anything. The Lord is coming to judge. Now, Revelation 19, verse 15. Now out of his mouth, out of Jesus' mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus comes, we are told that in his mouth there will be a sharp sword, which he will use to strike down the nations. The word for sword there is the Greek word ramphia. Now, this was not a precision sword called a machaira that was worn on the belt of the Roman soldiers. That was a sword, it was more like an, about a foot or an 18 inch long dagger. And they would use that in hand-to-hand -hand combat and pull it out. It was a precision weapon, right? The ramphias were about four foot long, heavy, two-edged broadswords. They were not precision weapons. The cavalry, those guys in the front lines, as they ran uh, in the battle to engage the enemy, would be carrying these ramphias uh, like a baseball bat with two hands, and they were just swinging them as they ran because these things were designed to do one thing. Sever heads, crush skulls, kill. That's what they were designed for. When Jesus comes back, there's no more time for repenting, no reasoning. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. That's over. Now it's judgment. And the Lord is going to destroy those who have opposed him, his enemies. But guys, this sharp sword that proceeds out of Jesus' mouth. And some artists over the centuries have tried to capture this on canvas. And it's hideous looking. You know, Jesus with a big sword coming out of his mouth. It's not literal. I don't think it is. The sword, sharp sword, is a symbol for God's word. For God's word. Listen, the same word, and we know Jesus created all things. We just read John's Gospel, right? Uh, chapter 1, verse 3. By him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. That was made, right? Jesus created everything with the word of his power. We learn in places like Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, Hebrews 1, uh, verses 2 and 3, that even as Jesus spoke the word and all was created, he also holds creation together with the same word of his power. Jesus' word is incredible. And what we're being told here is the same word that created everything and holds the physical universe together is going to be the same word of his power that will be used to destroy his enemies. He just speaks a word and they're wiped out. Now when Jesus returns, those who are still alive on the earth when he returns who are believers, of course they will be separated and allowed to enter into his kingdom. But the wicked... When he arrives, he's going to come to a certain location. We're going to talk about that in just a second. There's a battle that is going to be waged. All, at least the people of the world think they're going to wage war against Jesus. He is going to destroy them. And then the Bible tells us well, it's going to have, he's going to instantly slaughter the wicked. And then the rest of the world's unredeemed people that are scattered all throughout the earth. What happens? Well, Jesus in different places in the Gospels through parables taught us that when he returns, he's going to send his holy angels out throughout the entire earth who will gather everybody to Israel, to Jerusalem primarily. Uh, well, they will stand before him from the four corners of the earth and uh, they'll stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is just prior to him officially starting his kingdom on the earth. But they're going to stand before him, they're going to be judged, and they're going to be executed at what the Bible calls the sheep and the goat judgment talked about in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. And again, that precedes uh, the official start of his kingdom. He's got some unfinished business to take care of when he comes. Only believers are going to be allowed in his kingdom. 
So he's got to deal with the unbelievers, uh, his enemies, and so on. And so he will do that first, and then the kingdom will be established. But guys, in addition to using the sword for striking down and destroying his enemies, the Bible teaches that us that he's going to use an iron scepter for ruling during the millennial kingdom. Uh, one pastor put it well, he said, and I quote, The stern, swift judgment that marks the onset of Christ's kingdom will be the pattern of his rule throughout the millennium. During his thousand-year reign, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will swiftly judge all sin and instantly put down any rebellion. All people will be, will be required to conform to his law or face immediate judgment. Using the same imagery of ruling with a rod of iron, Jesus promised that believers would rule under him in the kingdom. He's, he's quoting from Revelation 2, verses 26 and 7. He quotes it, he says, where Jesus said, He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him. I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. End quote. So we, as his bride, will be coming with him, but he's promised that we will also be reigning with him. And that how faithful we are in using whatever gifts God has given us now will determine uh, how many cities actually we're going to rule over in the millennial kingdom. All right. Uh, you know, I've given you five talents. You've invested wisely. You've made ten. Uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, I'll give you, make you ruler over ten cities. Inherit and enter the joy of your Lord and so on. Okay. Revelation 19, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, uh, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. There's a name for this battle. It is the battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon. Turn back to Revelation 16. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of, from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that would be the devil, out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs, miracles, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty, verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, in Hebrew Armageddon. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo. Har means mount, or, you know, like a, not a mountain per se, but a, a large mount, all right? So Har Megiddo would be the mount or the mountain of Megiddo. But there isn't really a mountain of Megiddo. So commentators say, well, that language in the Hebrew could refer to the entire area, how it's surrounded by mounts. You can go online and, and, and Google this. And how that uh, surrounding this area are these mounts. And the area opens up to this gigantic plain or valley that we call the Valley of Megiddo. This valley is about 60 miles north of of Jerusalem and it's been the site of over 200 battles in history because it's perfect for warfare a gigantic flat area where armies can gather and do their thing it's going to be the place where the final world battle takes place interesting we call it the Valley of Megiddo uh, it's also known as the uh, Valley of Jezreel, the Plain of, of Esdralon. goes by different names, but it's been the uh, focal point of many battles over 
the centuries because it's just a natural uh, battlefield. Now, guys, the Antichrist armies have assembled to fight against the Lord and against his anointed as prophesied in Psalm 2, verse 2. But listen, and we've talked about this numerous times over the course of this study. So here are the Antichrist armies. They gather in the Valley of Megiddo to do war against Jesus. But what effect can a human army using surface-to-air missiles, Apache helicopters, AK-47, what effect will, it, will an earthly army have on the God of the universe? And how deceived do you have to be to think human armies can defeat the God of the universe? What effect will the Antichrist armies have on Jesus in this battle? None. They will have no effect. Turn to Psalm 2. Maybe God's a little scared, though. Maybe he's nervous when he sees all these armies gathered in the Valley of Megiddo. Oh, Gabriel, I don't know. It looks pretty threatening. I don't know. Yeah. Psalm 2, verse 1. God speaking, Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. Uh, I think going to war against God is about the very definition of a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Jesus, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. We're not going to have this man rule over us. We don't want Jesus as our king. Let's go to war. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens trembles with fear. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. That's a mocking laugh. I mean, come on. Again, how deceived. The Antichrist is going to be the ultimate deceiver who will convince people that if they follow him in his battle against God, they can be victorious. Wow. Wow. The Antichrist and his armies attempt to defeat the Lord. Uh, it is coming to keep him from establishing his kingdom, but it will prove to be utterly futile. If you're a Star Trek aficionado, you remember the Borg. Resistance is futile. That's exactly what it's going to be. In fact, it's called a battle, the Battle of Armageddon. That, I got mine in quotes in my notes because there is no battle. I mean, the battle doesn't even really start. Jesus wipes everybody out. It turns into a slaughter, really a supper, quote-unquote, for scavenger birds and wild animals, we're told. Guys, the first half of Revelation 19 describes the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? The last half describes the supper of the great God, verse 17. The word flesh, interestingly, is used five times in verse 18. Five times. And I think it's obvious that John's immediate reference is to human flesh eaten by vultures and other animals, uh, which are slaughtered by the Lord who come against him in battle. But I think there's a, definitely a deeper meaning here, guys. And here it is. Sinful, rebellious man loves his flesh lives for his flesh, feeds his flesh, worships his flesh, and puts his trust in his flesh, in his flesh, but now God destroys his flesh. God is going to destroy all idols, all false gods. And guys, I think the false god that leads the list of all gods in our lives is the flesh. It's the flesh. And as God is destroying all the gods of man, he is going to destroy man's flesh. Now, guys, at this point, I'd like to stop and try to provide some contextual clarity and chronology as to how these events unfold. We, you know, As you read Scripture, you know what's going to happen. Sometimes the order is a little hard to figure out. Let me try to help, all right? And I'm not saying... I'm, I'm absolutely correct. 
Uh, I've fit this stuff together like you can, and I'm going to tell you what I think is going to happen in the order uh, it's going to happen, okay? As we have talked about, the Bible predicts that at the end of the Great Tribulation period, the Antichrist and his armies gather in the Valley of Megiddo to fight against Jesus when he appears in the sky at his second coming to keep him from ruling his king over the earth. Now, they know the day he's coming. They know the day he's coming, that it will be the 1260th day after the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and declares himself to be God. The Bible says basically start counting. 1260 days later, Jesus Christ will return to establish his kingdom. So the devil knows the scriptures. The devil can count. And he is going to be um, making sure that all the armies of the Antichrist, which are being led ultimately by the devil, that they are ready when Jesus returns. They know the day is coming and they're going to be waiting for him in the valley of Megiddo. You can read Matthew 24, verses 15 to 30, Revelation 12, verse 6. But I want to give you, I want to just take you through a few of these scriptures. We've already covered most of them, but again, we're here we're seeing the actual return of Christ and what's going on. So, first of all, turn to Revelation 17. And let's pick it up in verse 12. Then the ten horns which you saw, now these are the ten kings that rule uh, over the entire earth under the Antichrist. He's the supreme leader. The earth is divided up into ten regions, each having a king or a prime minister or whatever they're going to call these leaders. All right. So these ten kings under the Antichrist, who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Verse 13. These are of one mind. And they will give their power and authority to the beast, to the Antichrist. These will make war, or try to make war, with the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them, of course he will, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Revelation 14. Starting with verse 18. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud, loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Judgment has now come. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress, these are people now that uh, that are living in rebellion, those who are earth dwellers, follow the Antichrist, right? This is The imagery is that God's going to gather them together like you would gather grapes, throw them into a big wine press where grapes are trodden upon, remember in the old days with bare feet, and they would uh, smash the grapes and the, and the juice would come out until you made wine. Um, but of course, when you did that uh whatever you were wearing at the time as you're stomping on these grapes the red grape juice just flew all over your clothes you were just covered stained right with red um verse 20 in the wine press was trampled outside the city um and and blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1600 furlongs so this is describing when Jesus returns, because the imagery well, is, is just almost exact with Revelation 19, verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, Jesus Christ, that with it he should strike the nations. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So Jesus is going to be crushing people in judgment. All right. But this idea that the blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles. That's about four feet. For 1,600 furlongs. That's 200 miles. Now, there's commentators, and I happen to be of this mindset when I first started teaching Revelation, that so many are going to be killed in the Valley of Megiddo that their blood will run four feet deep for 200 miles. 
But then I started thinking about that, and that doesn't sound possible. All right? I don't know how much blood uh, you, what is it, five quarts in a normal person? Um, you know, if you had a billion people that were killed, could that create enough blood to, to, to be four foot deep or 200 miles? I think actually what's being uh, said here, just like when you were to step on grapes and the juice splashed up, there's going to be so much blood running in the Valley of Megiddo that when the horses are walking, it will the blood will splash up to the horse's bridles about, about four foot high, okay? It'd be a lot of blood, but I don't think enough to run four foot deep for 200 miles. I could be wrong. We'll see. Actually, we'll see from the balcony seats, the mezzanine. But, um, but the, the, image is, uh, the imagery is very graphic of how the Lord is going to smash, squash, completely destroy his enemies. I want you to turn to a Zechariah for this, because I want to mention this and uh, use it to kind of springboard into something for just a moment. Zechariah 14, and we'll just read verses 3 and 4. Remember now, this is all going together. All of this coincides. I just brought out some of the uh, verses that talk about judgment and people gathering in the valley of Megiddo and, and, and so on and so forth. But here in Zechariah 14, starting with verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Uh, this is still talking about the battle of Armageddon. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north and half toward the south. Now, according to Zechariah's prophecy, when Jesus returns, he will come to the Mount of Olives, to the very place he blasted off. Remember? They went as far as the Mount of Olives, Bethany, which is on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. And from there he ascended into heaven. And they were all standing, his disciples looking up into heaven, gawking as he disappears in the clouds. And an angel said, men of Galilee, why are you, you know, I'll paraphrase, what are you doing? Gawking into heaven. This same Jesus will come as you have seen him go, but right now you got work to do. That was the idea, okay? Um, so he's going to come back and uh, when he comes back, at one point, he will step his feet on the Mount of Olives, and uh, it's going to split. This, it's, and it's not just a small little mount. If you've ever been to Israel, you've gone online, the Mount of Olives is a big place. Sure, the Garden of Gethsemane is on the north side or on the west side, um, but there are towns like Bethany and other places. The mountain is so big, it has multiple towns there okay so uh the mount of olives is going to split when jesus sets feet his feet on there again creating a valley uh through which jesus is going to lead all the heavenly armies that have returned with him he's going to he's going to lead them and uh, he's going to lead them up to the golden gate also known as the eastern gate this is the one that the muslims uh blocked up with stones because they knew the prophecies about how messiah jewish messiah was going to come and establish his kingdom. And so they figured, well, we'll just block off the entrance. We'll stone it up. And we'll put a grave site. We'll put a, you know, a cemetery in front of them. Because they knew that Jews could not come in contact with any tombs lest they be defiled. That'll keep them. That'll keep them from coming back, they thought. When Jesus comes back, first of all, he can resurrect the dead. And he can speak a word, which he will do, and blow that opening wide open. And then he will enter into the city. Now, the Golden Gate, guys, is the gate closest to the temple. It was the one that Jesus and his disciples exited the night before his crucifixion. And that whole week he was in the temple precincts teaching. But the Golden Gate was the one closest to the temple, the one you exited the city to cross the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. 
We've been talking about that on Sunday morning. But um, he's going to lead this procession through the Golden Gate to the temple where he will actually sit down. Now, in Jesus' day, the uh, well, there was a temple, but the um, Ark of the Covenant was gone. It, it had disappeared in the days of Jeremiah. Nobody knows where it is. The rabbis will tell you they found it, they know where it is, and at the right moment they're going to bring it out when Messiah comes, and so on and so forth. I don't believe they have it. They might. I doubt it. But that Ark of the Covenant had on top of it something called the mercy seat. It was a solid piece of gold, and it was um, out of this solid piece of gold were hammered um, two cherubs. A cherub is the highest form of an angel. So on top of the mercy seat were two angels, two cherubs, right? Cherubim plural, okay? And uh, they were facing each other with their heads bowed down and their wings touching almost tip to tip right above the mercy seat. That mercy seat represented God's throne on the earth. When Jesus returns, he is going to uh, create a place in the temple. Maybe he's going to create a new temple. But the Antichrist is going to have the temple rebuilt. He might use that one, although he will no doubt kind of refurbish it. Um, and he's going to create a throne where he is going to sit and rule from Jerusalem over the whole world. Over the whole world. However, Isaiah tells us that before he comes to the Mount of Olives, when he returns at his second coming. Now, you have to understand something. He's going to return and he's going to go to war. The Antichrist and his armies are waiting in the Valley of Megiddo. But that's not the only place where this war is going to take place. It's going to stretch from Megiddo all the way down to Edom. Edom is modern-day Jordan. That happens to be where Basra was located. That also is the place where the rock city of Petra is located. When Jesus fights against his adversaries, at one point the battle, and it's not much of a battle, he's just wiping everybody out. At one point he goes down to the rock city of Petra, where God's people, Jew and Gentile believers, mostly I think Jewish believers, have been held up. The Bible says that God is going to protect them there. Uh, and if you've ever studied uh, the rock city of Petra, it's literally a city carved into the mountain. And you can only get to it through a canyon, and that canyon narrows to about eight foot at one point. Very hard to defeat, very easy to defend. In fact, in the old days, when enemy uh, troops tried to take it, the people would be up on top of the walls looking down with hot boiling oil, and they would just dump it on the armies. And believe me, that tend to take the wind out of your sails if you were, you know, coming against, right? So it was very difficult to defend, excuse me, to defeat. Uh, easy to defend. And so a massive bunch of believers are going to run down, and, and maybe some unbelievers too, are going to run down to the rock city of Petra to, to escape the Antichrist's um, fury. He's going to go against the Jewish people like nobody has ever seen. Jesus said it. In those days, the tribulation will be so great against you that it will be unlike anything that's ever happened in the past nor will ever happen again. This is how uh, much the Jewish people are going to be persecuted. And a whole bunch of them, and I'm, I'm not saying there aren't any Gentiles. There might be. Mostly Jews. Um, probably mostly unbelievers, but there will be definitely believers among them. They will take refuge down there. The Antichrist will send his armies but he won't be able to get at them. So when Jesus comes and starts this battle in Megiddo, he eventually comes down to the area of Basra, to where the, the, uh, the rock city of Petra is located, and he wipes out the Antichrist armies, thus completing his victory over those of the area who have gathered to fight against him. And then he's going to go 
after he saves these people. Then he's going to come up from the area of Edom. And I believe, well, let me just say this. Um, you might ask yourself, okay, all these people are down there in Petra. How did they get down there in the first place? Well, Jesus told them to go. What do you mean? Well, Matthew 25, verses 15 through 16, and then verse 21. Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, that's when the Antichrist puts his image in the holy of holies, demands to be worshipped as God. Verse 16, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And many believe he has in mind the mountains uh, of Edom, again, Basra, and where Petra is located. Verse 21, For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be again. Persecution against the Jewish people. They've always been persecuted, most recently by Hitler, who killed six million Jews. And because of that slaughter and that holocaust, Jews created a bumper sticker that said, never again. Never again will we allow our people to be slaughtered, six million of us. But the Bible says two-thirds of the Jews will be killed by the Antichrist. If there's 15 million Jews in the world, I'm not sure. That's an old figure that I was told years ago. I don't know. But two-thirds of whatever that number is, if it's 30 million, 20 million Jews will be slaughtered by the Antichrist. Now many will escape, and Jesus will rescue them. But uh, Revelation chapter 12, um, verses 3 to 6, talking about, I'll let you read the whole context. I'll just read verse 6, actually. But at one point, the Antichrist, Satan really, uh, using the Antichrist, is going to begin to persecute Israel. Now this is now talking about the, end, the very thing Jesus just talked about in Matthew 24. All right? And uh, then the woman, Israel, Revelation 12, 6, then the woman, Israel, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now we come to Isaiah 63, if you turn there. Because this is what I wanted to get to, but I wanted to kind of set the context. Isaiah 63, starting with verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Again, modern Jordan, where the rock city of Petra is located. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Who is this one? I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. That's who it is. It's me, the Lord of glory. Wow. Sends shivers up your spine. Who is this? Who is so strong? Who is this whose garments are splattered with blood? Who could be one who could judge the nations like this? It is I, Jesus responds. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in, in the winepress? He answers. Verse 3. I have trod, trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was none, no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. And my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Well, after he wipes out the armies of Antichrist down there by Petra, then he leads the procession from the land of Edom up, I believe, the Jericho Road. We travel that road from Jericho up to Jerusalem amazing thing uh, the first time i ever traveled that road by bus the first time i was in israel 
Jericho is um, 12, um, roughly 1,200 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is like 2,500 feet above, feet above sea level. So in the span of 20, 25 miles, you go about 4,000 feet, okay? And when you're on this road, and when we were in Jerusalem for the first time I had ever been there, we had traveled all day, went down to, um, uh, not, not as far as uh, Petra, but went down to where the Dead Sea Scrolls were and spent the day looking at the caves of the Qumran community, and, uh, and, the, and the day was ending, and so we were making our way up to Jerusalem where we would spend the night and, and begin the last leg of our journey, which would be Jerusalem and its surrounding areas, right? And it's tradition for the bus drivers to play over the sound system a one particular song called basically the Song of Ascents when you go to Jerusalem. Uh, everyone sings this song. So he was playing this song, very moving song, you know. Um, and I'm looking, and honestly, you'd have to, I can't even do it justice. The sun was setting, and it was causing the city to have a golden glow. In fact, Jerusalem, if you build in Jerusalem, uh, it's mandated. They, you have to use Jerusalem stone. Why is that? Because when the sun sets <clears throat> or rises in the morning, it, 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 it kind of um, glances off the buildings and turns the whole city into a golden glow. Very, very heavenly. And we're driving up this road, and it looked like, because we're going from 1,200 feet below sea level to 2,500 feet above sea, it honestly looked like Jerusalem, which was now bathed in golden light, was in the clouds. I've never been so moved in my life. I couldn't believe it. I was completely awestruck. I'm looking at, never been to Jerusalem. It's my first time now. And here we are ascending, and I'm looking. Honestly, it looked like it was sitting in the clouds. Golden glow. I'm like, wow, wow. And I believe that when Jesus rescues these people from the rock city of Petra and wipes out the armies of Antichrist, he is going to lead them up the Jericho Road. And when he steps on the Mount of Olives, it's going to cleave in two, creating a big valley. And we're all going to follow him because uh, not just the people he rescued from Petra, we're all going to be his armies, right? The church, the Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, right? Uh, holy angels. These people that were rescued from, from Petra who are now believers, no doubt. They're all, we're all going to be following the Lord, the great king, king of kings, who has just defeated the armies of Antichrist, going to lead us into the city through the Golden Gate, where he is going to lead a procession to the temple, where he is going to sit down as king over the whole earth. Wow. Wow. Let's read Revelation 19, verses 11 to 20, one last time, because I want to bring something up and we'll close. So, Verse 11, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Uh, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the, of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great, all those who come against Jesus. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat 
on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs or miracles in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. I wanted to read all of that because I want to say one last time. is you read the account of Jesus' coming, uh, second coming of Christ is laid out in Revelation 19, don't confuse this with the rapture as many have done. Let's be clear. No such events as we read here in Revelation 19, no such events that surround the coming of Jesus Christ. Armies being gathered, right? All kinds of things happening. No such events that we read here in Revelation 19 will take, that take place at the second coming are going to take place at the rapture. Therefore, this passage, listen, is not teaching a post-tribulation rapture of the church, that Jesus returns post-trib at the end of the tribulation period. That's a very popular view, very popular view, especially in the older days. Many of the mainline denominations, scholars, were, were, were very much believed in a post-tribulation rapture, that Jesus was not going to come for his church until uh, after the tribulation period. One of the authors I've quoted over the course of our study, uh, author Mark, Mark Hitchcock, a very brilliant guy, written a uh, kind of a commentary on Revelation. Let me read to you what he said concerning this, right? He said, and I quote, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21 is the classic New Testament text on the second coming of Christ. Yet, it makes no mention of believers being caught up to meet Christ as he returns. In fact, to the contrary, it mentions a group of people coming down with Christ from heaven, verse 14, people who have already been rewarded, which supports the view that they were raptured to heaven at some earlier point. This is consistent with the pre-tribulation rapture view. With regard to the absence of any mention of the rapture in Revelation 19, author and scholar John Walvert observed, and I'm quote, he's quoting him now, when all the evidence is put together, all the evidence is put together, one must conclude that in the most comprehensive and detailed account to be found anywhere in the Bible of the second coming of Christ, there is no detailed, there is no resurrection or translation mentioned. Resurrection, we know what that is. Translation, that's when uh, our human bodies are glorified. And that will happen the moment we are resurrected at the rapture. Okay, we'll be resurrected and our human bodies will be glorified, translated. That's the idea, okay? Um, but he says that um, there's no evidence uh, for this. We don't read of any of it uh, in the most comprehensive, detailed account to be found anywhere in the Bible of the second coming of Christ. Uh, there is no resurrection or translation mentioned as an event occurring uh, in the second coming itself. The post-tribulational rapture, which should have been a prominent feature of the book of Revelation if it were indeed part of the great climax of the second coming of Christ, is totally missing in the narrative. If details like the casting of the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire are mentioned, and the specific resurrection of the tribulation saints is described, how much more the rapture and translation of the church um, as a whole should have been included if as a matter of fact, it is part of the great event uh, of the second coming. Uh, Revelation chapters 19 through 20 constitutes the major problem of post-tribulationists. They have not scriptural proof for the post-tribulational rapture in the very passages that ought to include it, end quote. This, there's any passage in... If, if post-tribulation rapture was really scriptural, this would be the place where you would see it. I mean, this is the premier passage of Jesus' second coming. And yet we, we read nothing about the church being raised. Because I believe the church has been resurrected, glorified, and has been in heaven since chapter 4, verse 1. And we've talked about that, right? Mark Hitchcock concludes by saying, and I'm quoting, 
If the rapture occurs in conjunction, in conjunction with the second coming of Christ, as post-tribulationists contend, then why isn't the rapture mentioned in, in Revelation 19? The absence of the rapture in Revelation 19 is inexplicable if it happens at the same time as the second coming as post-tribulationists contend. Thus, Revelation supports the concept of the rapture taking place, listen, before the seven-year tribulation begins, unquote. All right, let's just finish with verses 21 and 2. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which rest of the armies of the Antichrist, the Antichrist and false prophet are taken off the earth and cast into the lake of fire alive. And the rest who were there, the armies of the Antichrist, the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Real quickly, because we're done. But, guys, the judgment of the beast and false prophet, the Antichrist and false prophet, culminates in their being cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Uh, the lake of fire is mentioned, the place that we call hell, is mentioned or talked about in more detail in chapter 20, so we'll wait until we get there to really look at it more closely. But by comparing other scriptures, it seems that, and I think this is a pretty sure thing, that the Antichrist and false prophet are the first, to, not the last, but the first to inhabit the lake of fire or hell. One commentator said, and I quote, These two men are cast alive into the lake burning with fire and brimstone, where a thousand years later they are still said to be suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Revelation 20, verse 10. This incidentally proves that the lake of fire is not annihilation and that it is not purgatorial either. For it neither annihilates, doesn't burn people up so they go out of existence, nor does it purify them as purgatory is supposed to do. If it was real, it's not. For these two fallen foes of God and man after a thousand years are still suffering judgment, end quote. And we'll see that as we go. But guys, as I said, and I touched on it earlier, so let me just say this quickly. Today when an unbeliever dies, his or her spirit goes to a place called Hades, somewhere in the center of the earth. Hades means the unseen world, that is the realm of the dead, um, where they are fully conscious, by the way. There's no such thing as soul sleep. Those who are cast into Hades are fully conscious. And we know that from Luke 16, verse 23. When believers die, well, as we just said, they immediately go into the presence of the Lord. Now, guys, Hades will one day be emptied of its dead, Revelation 20, verse 13. And all these people will have been judged, and then they will be cast into hell to join Satan, the false prophet, and the, and the beast. Okay? So, um, and by the way, hell was not even created for man it was created for the devil and his angels but if people want to follow the devil and rebellion against god they're going to wind up in the place where he's going to spend eternity the lake of fire or hell right I'll give you one final quote and we'll close the the fiery lake is a different place than hades was prepared for the devil and his angels no i heard that somewhere matthew 25 verse 41 and will not be occupied by human beings until later. The false prophet and Antichrist will be thrown into the lake of fire before the millennial kingdom. All right, uh, But the rest of the world will not be judged until the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verses 11 15, which takes place after the millennial kingdom. So the false prophet and Antichrist will be in the lake of fire for a thousand years before all unbelievers are resurrected, stand before God, and then join the false prophet and Antichrist in hell or the lake of fire. The same inspired word of God which so wonderfully describes the grace of God and the salvation which is available to all who believe is equally plain 
about the judgment of all who reject the grace of God. The tendency of liberal interpreters of the Bible to emphasize passages dealing with the love of God and to ignore passages dealing with his righteous judgment is completely unjustified. The passages on judgment are just as inspired and accurate as those which develop the doctrines of, of grace and salvation. The Bible is clear that judgment awaits the wicked and the second coming of Christ is the occasion for a worldwide judgment unparalleled in Scripture since the time of Noah's flood. And we'll end it there. And next week, God willing, we will enter into chapter 20. Incredible things still coming. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in darkness, but you have told us things which are coming. And we just thank you, Lord, that, well, Jesus is coming to fix this world, Lord, to deliver us from the evil of man and create a kingdom where true righteousness will reign. We thank you, Lord, and as we see the world around us getting worse and worse, like John the Apostle, we, f Apostle, we find ourselves saying more and more every day, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.